Do you believe that it's never too late to create the life that you really want? Well, you should. Ordinary people are living extraordinary lives into their 80s, 90s, and beyond, proving that it's not about age, it's about attitude. And folks, that attitude is called growing bolder. I'm Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer. And I got it. I got that attitude, and it feels good. In fact, you'll love it, too, because on today's program, you're going to meet a woman who was born with two deformed feet but still went on to become the greatest distance runner in the world. Plus, she took up a rare musical instrument in her 50s and now in her 90s is one of only a handful of people in the world who can play the glass harmonica. Also, the Emmy Award-winning journalist and TV host who walked away from one of the most high-profile jobs in television. Think of your fellow man, lend him a helping hand, put a little love in your heart. You see it's getting late, oh please don't hesitate, put a little love in your heart. It is a sound and a song that is unmistakable, recorded by one of the first and one of the best female singer-songwriters of the entire rock and roll era, who also happened to be a member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Her music, folks, has been covered by everyone from Annie Lennox to Stevie Nicks to Van Morrison, from the Carpenters to Kim Carnes, and again, we could go on and on and on. Yeah, she's not just a great songwriter. She's a singer who is responsible for two of the most iconic anthems of the 60s, the one you're listening to now, Put a Little Love in Your Heart, and another one that we're going to listen to in a second. She, of course, is the great Jackie DeShannon. Jackie, how are you? I'm great. It's great to be with you guys. Well, well, thank you so much. You know, just listening to your voice, it sounds like you've got as much enthusiasm, as much energy, as much excitement about life as you've ever had. I do. I'm, uh, I don't know, I try to stay as positive as possible, and it's a bit difficult these days, but I think music keeps you young. Well, you certainly sounded, and especially for someone who was pretty much born into the business. I mean, you were singing on the radio by the time you were six. You were writing your own songs at 12, and you were actually signed uh, to a record contract at 16, right? Yes, it was very exciting because uh, in those days, there were just a very few uh, record companies. So to, so to be signed by... A big record company was a very, very special thing. It was rather hard at that time. And Jackie, one of the more interesting things, and people, I, I'm sure their jaw drops and hits the floor when you tell them it was 1964 when you were the opening act for the Beatles on their first U.S. tour. How in the world did that come about, and what was it like? <laughs> yes. Uh, that, in fact, I do a little show uh, out here in Los Angeles, Breakfast with the Beatles with Chris Carter, and I do the Beatles news every week. I'm a news gal. <laughs> um, it, uh, I think that my um, the general manager, I think at the time, uh, Al Bennett was knew uh, Brian Epstein very well because at one time he had an opportunity to sign the Beatles, and I and he, I would not want to have that on my resume. Uh, and so they asked, you know, would you like to go on tour? And also the agency that they were with, I was with, and I think they kind of went through some people and presented them to Brian and uh, the Beatles, and I was one of the lucky ones that was chosen. They used to hear my demos that I did for Metric Music, the arm, the publishing arm of the record company, because we were signed with Dick James Music Company in London, and the Beatles were signed with them as well. Um, so they represented uh, the, comp- the publishing arm of Liberty Records. So they heard my, when I first met them, uh, Paul said, I know who you are, I've listened to your demos. Wow. Which, which was so cool, and I was very, very nervous. But um, the Cow Palace was our, our first, concert in San Francisco, and uh, I don't even know where to start as far as how exciting it was, because other than Elvis, I I don't think that people had seen that kind of enthusiasm and craziness, and just remember, there were four of them, 
get crazy about. <laughs> you had to be the envy of every one of your fans. Folks, we're talking with Jackie DeShannon, and we mentioned earlier, I mean, she's responsible for so many songs, but, but two come immediately to mind. And, and for me, one of my favorite all-time songs is one that she performed, written by Burt Backrack and Hal David, and, and it went a little something like this. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now. Absolutely timeless. That song. Jackie was recorded by several artists, but your version, your arrangement, your voice is the one that people still talk about and still want to listen to 50 years later. Do you like it? Did you like it as much as everybody else? Every time I sing it, if I'm doing a show, a concert, I I get the same chills as as when I first heard it. It's a great story. In fact, Burt Backrack has a book out, and uh, he kind of tells a little bit of the story of how it was chosen for me. It wasn't really. Um, I was presented with the option of doing a, a single date, which was at that time four, four songs. You go in and record those, and you select one to, to be the single that you put out. And um, they had played me several songs, and uh, Hal David kept saying, Bert, play Jackie What the World Needs Now. And he was going, well, I don't know. So 20 minutes this went on. Finally, he played the song for me. And when I learned it and sang it, uh, he just flipped. And we said, he said, that's it. And we went to. And the reason he was, I found out in the book, um, people had turned it down. So many, you know, artists that he had presented it to had uh, passed on the song and thought it was kind of laughable. And you but, know, uh, to me, growing up in Kentucky with cornfields and wheat fields, it was, and it had a lot of gospel uh, influence. And I just thought, this is for me. And I just sang my heart out. And, and you know, this song and, and put a little love in your heart. Th- th- this was kind of like at the height of the Vietnam War, and, and protest songs were all the rage. W- was this your personal reaction to what was going on in the U.S. at the time? I mean, was there some sort of contrarian thing going on here that made your music stand out more than it might have otherwise? I th- like to think of myself as very much a farm girl, real Americana, and um, that kind going, you know, singing gospel songs at just at the age of three and growing up uh, with that kind of spirit, I don't know. It might, and, and in fact, my mom, I think, when going around saying something about put a little love in your heart or kind of stuck with me, it's, it just kind of popped out because my brother and I were writing songs, working on an album, and uh I said, well, what do you have today? And he started playing, dun, 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 dun. And then I just went into think of your fellow man, lend him a helping hand, put a little love in your heart. That was it, that fast. You know, can I tell you, Jackie, you are so interesting to, to listen to. I mean, you, your, your voice is strong. You, your memory is great. You're beautiful. You're passionate. You know, you're still uh, telling great stories. You talked earlier about some challenges that you face when you come of age. What are you dealing with now? How are you doing? Ooh. <laughs> oh, you went there. You shouldn't go there. <laughs> uh, no, I'm actually, I'm pretty good. Um, I try to, as I said, I try to stay positive. I, 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 love, my, I love writing songs. I love music. And, and I think you have to do the things, take the time, and it's sort of corny to smell the roses, but to do the things that make you happy and uh, it doesn't have to be on an extravagant basis. I'm right now in uh, the frame of mind of get rid of everything but your backpack and your computer. Hmm. <laughs> So that's where I am. Nothing like downsizing. You know, you know, Bill is right. There's so many stories we could talk about with you if only we had a lot more time. But we have to mention you earned a Grammy in 1982 for Song of the Year with uh, Betty Davis' Eyes, which, of course, was recorded by Kim Carnes, who did a great job with the song, which you actually wrote, you know, almost a decade before and recorded. Were you surprised by the success that uh, Kim had with that song more than a decade after you wrote it? 
I was very surprised. Um, we had Donna Weiss, who's my co-writer, we had sent the song around to a lot of people, and we, we never heard anything back. And um, actually, you know, I have a recording of it. Um, the producer and I kind of clashed because I wanted, we had a, an up-tempo, more of a rock kind of feeling, and he heard the song in a different way. And at that time, women, uh, at least for my, for me, going in the studio, I would have all these ideas because I produced all my demos. But if you did not agree with the producer, you were considered very, very difficult lady to work with, and she's, you know, she's impossible. And but now women, thank goodness, they just go in and and, and are just as respected as uh, you know any any guy that would produce it and it was it was kind of hard in those days to to really stand your ground but nevertheless um donna had the cassette in her pocket and she was meeting kim at some point and uh she was taking her another songs and then a writer that she was with and she just happened to take it out of her pocket and say, well, listen to this song that Jackie and I wrote. And uh, Kim loved it, and they, and they recorded it. In fact, the head of the record company, I was told, was not that, you know, excited about it until people just fell in love with it and started adding it on the radio stations. Those were the days when the disc jockeys had their choice of what they wanted to play. Yay! <laughs> so... Um, she did it, and uh, it just, you know, it took off and became number one all over the world. It's an incredible story, and so much of your life is, Jackie. I mean, you you dated Elvis. You were friends with Ricky Nelson and the Everly Brothers. You co-starred with Bobby Vinton on Surf Party, toured with the Beatles, wrote songs with Randy Newman and Jimmy Page. You, you haven't written your life story, but, but if you did, what would the overall message, what would, what would you want us to learn from the experiences you have had and the life that you've lived, Jackie? Uh, I think the experience that I would say is that um, just have to keep it simple. Uh, I was very fortunate to work with people that were very humble. The biggest of, of, of stars that I worked with, they were not, uh, you know, did not have an attitude, were not puffed up. Um, a great story of, with Elvis is, this uh, guy was interview him, interviewing him at one point said, well, Elvis, how do you feel about all the fans tearing up your clothes, tearing up your cars? And he said, well, they bought them for me. They can tear them up. <laughs> and I don't know that you find a lot of that today. Um, and every one of them, from all the people that you named, more than gracious, the Beatles treated me and the rest of the artists just on an equal level, there was never any uh, attitude or I'm, I'm, you know, we're the Beatles and we're better than anyone else. They were just uh, ads. And, it, you know, I always make that uh, one of the things I talk about is, is to be humble and be grateful for the things that uh, the bl- many blessings that you have. And we all have our own gifts and we all, the, the thing is to do the best that you can do and be the best that you can be because we're we're all the same and just just keep your own identity and be proud of the things that you've accomplished. Jackie, we're going to have to leave it there. You are a blessing to uh, to the American music scene. Thrilled you're still doing your thing. Folks, check her out on Sirius Satellite Radio or jackiedeshannon.com. Jackie, thanks so much. We got to dig a well of clean water All for our sisters and our brothers We got to dig a well of clean water To save our sons and save our daughters Coming up, we've got a new project here at Team GB. We're producing a documentary on an amazing adventure, and you'll hear the trailer next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... 
Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps. Taking a walk, making a smoothie, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. And by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com. The following segment is dedicated to the memory of Wendy Chioji. Schaefer here with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. One of our newest passions, and it's a great one, is a documentary on a group of cancer survivors who recently climbed to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, the world's highest freestanding mountain. Yeah, Growing Bolder tagged along to document this amazing, life-changing, life-challenging adventure. Here's just a little taste. Tomorrow we go a little higher. We go to 4,300 meters. Yeah, I'm nervous as can be about tomorrow and the next day. And uh, when things get hard, we'll think about those people that we love and uh, those people that we wish were here with us. How do you build a team that can be in these incredibly dangerous situations and have everybody come back home alive? That's our responsibility. We are about to make our final ascent on Kilimanjaro. Now the summit is giant. <laughs> Pretty excited about it. I'm a little, a little jittery, a little anxious. I feel fantastic. I'm ready to go. We've, uh, we've had good group going up. We've taken our time. We've worked hard, and uh, couldn't be more excited. Good luck, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. It's 3 o'clock in the morning, and we're getting to the coldest part of the day, and we're about 17,500 feet. We're doing good, but it's time when you start to really dig deep and remember why you're climbing and who you're climbing for. I'm stronger than this mountain. That's all that matters. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Think about my friend Jimmy, my friend Lori. I could feel and taste the blood dripping down the back of my throat. My vision was starting to go. It was the altitude starting to get, really starting to get to me. And I really, for the first time, the whole trip, started to doubt if I could finish. That easily was the hardest thing that I've ever done. Um, times it's hard to keep going, but we're here for a bigger reason, so here I am. Brutal. I mean, harder than I could have imagined. 45 minutes to the top for 32 million people around the world that are suffering with cancer. We are all, every single one of us, every person on this planet is stronger than we give ourselves credit for. We can do these things. We can do unbelievable things. It's illuminating, it's uplifting, it's powerful, it's spiritual, it's emotional, it's impactful. It's just the most amazing, life-changing experience of my entire life. Doug, I don't know if you're on top of that mountain, headed up or headed down, but I wanted you to know before you hear about it somewhere else that Jimmy passed away at 2.05 a.m. Pacific Standard Time this morning. If you're at the summit, please blow him a kiss for us. That was Doug Allman, who's a three-time cancer survivor himself, learning as soon as we got off the mountain that one of his close friends, someone that he was climbing for, passed away while we were actually on the summit. Of course, Bill, everybody was climbing not only for themselves, but for their loved ones and the 32 million cancer survivors worldwide. The message of the climb is that anything is possible. Life is worth fighting for. It's a shout-out of inspiration to every family in America because we've all been touched one way or another by the insidious monster cancer. You know, we also heard in that trailer our friend Wendy Chioji, who was climbing 10 weeks after completing radiation and chemotherapy for her second cancer. And at the risk of giving too much away, not only did Wendy make it to the summit, so did everyone else on the climb 
all 16 team members. And as you folks know, we love telling the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, especially when they're doing it to benefit others, which is why we're so excited for this project and can't wait for you to see it. If you'd like to learn more about the adventure and about the film and how you can get a DVD copy to inspire those in your life, just go to conqueringkilimanjaro.com. Coming up, we all know about the wet finger around the wine glass trick. Well, the fascinating history of the glass harmonica and the equally fascinating 90-year-old woman who plays it next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer. Our next guest is proof that having a passion for the arts, in her case music, is a key to living a long and active life. She's a very successful musician who has been a member of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra for almost 40 years now, where she has played the piano most of the time. Now, now should I warn everybody, Mark? Because, folks, you may want to pull the car over because the person you're going to hear is so cute you're going to be amazed because in 1991, after doing all the piano stuff, she added a new instrument to her repertoire. It is one of the most unusual instruments you've ever heard of. It's called the glass harmonica, and it was invented by Benjamin Franklin back in 1761. Let's welcome 90-year-old Cecilia Brower. Hey, Cecilia, how are you? I'm just fine, thank you. Ninety years old? Come on, you're not 90. Oh, yes, I am, and I'm proud of it. Never (laughs) thought in my life I'd be bragging that I'm 90. What is it like to be 90? Lucky. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's very exciting. I don't know how it all happened. Although my father was 98, my mother was 92, so... Some of the genes probably help, but I happen to feel being a musician, playing this wonderful music. It First of all, learning new music means your brain is going all the time with all the things you have to learn on that page. And then when you learn the music, your heart and your soul are so filled with the beauty of these the, the composer's music. I think that's magnificent. We got to pause for just a second here, folks. Yeah, I don't want to beat you over the head with this, but but just as you listen to this interview, understand that this woman is ninety years old. Listen to the passion, the excitement, the love of life that is in her voice. And you are certainly a fascinating woman, Cecilia. And you mentioned the fascinating instrument that has an equally fascinating history. The glass harmonica was inspired by something that we have all done at a party, at a wedding, at a bar mitzvah. We make tones by rubbing the, the, the uh, wet finger around the rim of a wine glass. And that, that's kind of the genesis for this instrument you play, correct? Uh, well, it's similar to it. Ben Franklin was sent to uh, England in uh, 1757 as a colonial rep- agent. And when he was there, he went to a concert given on the wine glasses. And he thought it was the sweetest sound he'd ever heard, but he wanted to be able to play more harmonies with his melody. Because with the wine glass, let's face it, two hands, two glasses. You can play fast on the wine glasses, but you see, on the harmonica, I can play as many notes as I can reach. And uh, that's what intrigued me. You don't drink any of the wine out of the wine glasses, do you? No, no, no. You can't out of these. These are on a horizontal bar, and I think it would spill out of them. You sound like someone who's tried. No, no, never, never. Oh, I've had my wine glass. We all have. You know, we all uh, enjoy a glass of wine here and there. Man, Cecilia, you are such a ball of energy. I know you've been a, a musician all your life. You, you've been a very successful pianist, and in 1991, as Mark said, 
you embraced this instrument, this ancient instrument, out of everything out there you could have tried, out of all the instruments you could have played, why did you turn to the harmonica? Well, actually, the way it came about in uh, the end of 1989, uh, there are um, uh, musicians in the Met Orchestra that formed a little chamber group, and they were going to be doing a concert in January of 1990 and with James Levine, but uh, he was not well at the time, so they had to substitute uh, the um, uh, uh, chalice. This is the instrument I've been playing at the Met since 1972. And uh, uh, we were going to play a Mozart quintet that en- uh, encompassed uh, the violin, uh, uh, we'll have to think of it, the violin, the cello, the oboe, and the flute, and either the piano or the harmonica. But we did substitute the chalice because I had never even heard of the harmonica. But six months later, I was in the Boston area, and I saw on television a program called Our Town uh, with Tom Brokaw, and they were featuring um, interesting people in the Boston area. And one of them was a uh, vignette about... Gerhard Finkenbeiner and his um, uh, glass factory in Waltham, Massachusetts. And it spoke about uh, the harmonica. In fact, they played a vignette a little bit of the harmonica and spoke about it. So I said, oh, my gosh, I had just heard about it in January. And here this was in June. And I decided to contact Gerhard. And then when I saw the harmonica, I decided to try it. But it was tricky to play. And I had to make about three trips back to the factory before I could make a sound on it. And then when I finally could uh, make a sound, I decided to invest. I always say, here I can play the Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky piano concertos. But I was so happy when I could play Yankee Doodle on the harmonica. Wow. Well, you know, that Gerhard Finkenbeiner, once he gets you, once he gets you interested in something. You know, I can hear everybody out there, uh, Cecilia, wondering what this sounds like. So let's play a little bit from one of your CDs. This is the Angelic sounds of Christmas, Cecilia Brower on the harmonica. That, of course, is Old Christmas Tree. And, uh, you know, just to give folks a visual, Cecilia, these are glass bowls, essentially, that are turned on their side, connected with a spindle that runs through all of them. And then it turns. And as it turns, you put your fingers on there to get those notes, correct? Exactly, yes. You get the bowls to vibrate. And uh, uh, it makes it a very ethereal sound. Uh, but the bowls are they they start from large to small or small to large, whichever way you want to look at it. They're made exactly the same way as Ben Franklin did. In the center of the bowls, there's an extended part of glass, and in there a cork is inserted with a hole uh, in the center of the cork, and then they were put onto this horizontal spindle. And of course, Franklin's was operated by a foot treadle, but uh, this one is electrified. But I always say to people when I do my programs on the harmonica, here if Ben Franklin had taken this theory of electricity a step further, he could have electrified his own machine. Hey, do you do you have roadies carry it around for you? I mean, is it a big, heavy thing? It's about thirty-five pounds, but it's—I uh, seem to manage it all pr- quite well, and uh, I've been doing it so far. Although it's starting to get a little heavier as the, as I get older. Cecilia, <laughs> we're we're, we're kind of getting into our last minute here with you, at least for this interview. Tell us a little bit about your philosophy of life. I mean, you—it's uh, not because you're ninety that you have this great attitude. You must have had it your whole life through. What can we learn from the things that you've experienced? Well, I'm a, I'm an optimist, and I have a good sense of humor, and I learn to laugh at things when it gets to be too much. If I can't handle it, let me have at least turn to laughter. But uh, I just enjoy a lot of things. I love my garden. I'm, I uh, cut my own grass. I'm outside working there out in the outdoors. And then, of course, uh, having music to, to satisfy my soul. I don't know what I'd do without it. It's just... I've been a very lucky lady, and I count my blessings. What a delight you are, Cecilia. Is it okay if we consider you a friend? Oh, I would... I would be honored. Oh, my gosh. Folks, her her name is Cecilia Brower. That's B-R-A-U-E-R. Google it. 
Go to YouTube, look at her videos, read about her. She's a remarkable woman, uh, someone we can all learn from, if nothing else, her attitude on life. Cecilia, thank you so much for all you do, and we look forward to talking to you again. Coming up next, the Emmy Award-winning journalist who walked away from one of the best jobs in entertainment television, next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at crosbywellnesscenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. Our next guest is an Emmy Award-winning journalist best known for his 17-year tenure on Entertainment Tonight, where he covered the world of entertainment journalism. Yeah, you name it, this guy has hosted it. His latest gig is as co-host of the Emmy-nominated daily series Home and Family on the Hallmark Channel. In addition to that job, he's an accomplished fine art photographer. He's a fitness buff and a single father of two. Welcome from his home in L.A., Mark Steinis. Good morning, Mark. How are you? Good morning, Mark and Bill. How's it going? Man, we're thrilled to have you. And before we get to your new show, a quick question about your old show, if we may. What do you think about the current state of entertainment and celebrity journalism today? Do we care as much about Miley and Justin Bieber and and the Kardashians? Uh, uh, Do we care too much about them? Did you get tired of that uh, that kind of gig? Yeah, it sort of... I don't know. I think people watch the show for escapism. They want to see, you know, the sort of car crash scenario, if you will, to see who's, you know, I just heard more news about Justin Bieber this morning getting into trouble. And it just, it troubles me. You know, when I started back on that show in the early to mid-90s, there was no thing as, such thing as the Internet back then, or it was just starting to, to come into focus. And a lot of celebrities needed shows like Entertainment Tonight to come and get their story out and to do set visits and whatnot. Now it's shifted so much where celebrities are controlling their own spin. They're going through their Twitter accounts and Instagrams, and they're reaching their fans directly and bypassing shows. So it seems, from from my perspective, a lot of those shows have to go as sensationalized as possible in order to grab an audience that's there to get sort of the latest. And unfortunately, that is when things go wrong. It's when... Bieber gets pulled over and, you know, a bunch of stuff falls out, or it's the um, Donald Sterling news where everything is so sensational anymore. Um, it's like, it's almost what you, you have to have stuff like that for people to care. And it was, it was growing on me. I mean, I felt at the end of the day, I didn't want to put that stuff out in the, in the universe for me. I wanted something that was more wholesome, that mattered, that my kids, um, you know, could watch and, you know, just feel good about it. I, I, I tell people that, you know, I, I couldn't wash it off at the end of the day. I'd like to come home and leave my job where it was, and it just it wasn't um, something that I could shake at times. So I, I just wanted to move on, and, and there's a place for it. It's a young audience that chases that information, but unfortunately now for shows like my former and, and all the others that are similar, it, people are going to the Internet to get the breaking news, TMZ has changed that a lot because when they came out with, you know, their show, they had a massive, powerful, you know, website that complemented it, and people were getting all their information way before we would hit air, that the ones that were really in search of it. So I don't know what the future is for shows like that. I know they're struggling. The numbers have continued to decline over the years across the board. They they still have a place, I think, in our in sort of our culture, but. It's definitely changed from what it was when I started. Mark, though, we're far more interested in you because here you were. You had the spotlight on you every single night in millions and millions of homes. And this whole growing bolder concept, you had to make a tough decision to walk away from what everyone else perceives as success. 
Where did you get the courage? How did you make that change and that decision to move on? Uh, there are two little guys in my life who needed a dad to be home with them more often, to be quite honest with you. I mean, that was one thing that was really pulling at my heartstrings. I was traveling all over the world, and as much as that sounds like a fabulous proposition for many to say, wow, first-class travel and wonderful hotel accommodations, you know, you fly, you jump on a plane, you miss your kid's performance at school, you fly to Heathrow, you get off in the middle of the night and you race to your hotel for a minute and a half of sleep to do a seven-minute interview with Hugh Jackman and you're back on a plane and you get home and you hear the stories of what you missed. And I felt like the price just wasn't there anymore for me. I was, I sensed that I was just, you know, working to provide for my family and not part of my family. And to me, you know, it's you make those decisions, and you may, you know, I made sacrifices for 17 years, and I just felt, you know, what I, I, there's got to be something else out there, and I felt it was it was time to step away from that platform, and fortunately, find finding one that was just in my sweet spot uh, with the show that I'm currently on, and you know, but it, if it were for Kine Avery, it would have been a much more difficult decision for me to make. Well, Mark, we love people of passion, and you certainly are that, from your photography to fitness to to do-it-yourself projects to cooking to your sons. I mean, you like it all, and, and as you say, home and family is is a sweet spot. It's a perfect show for a guy like you, isn't it? It's my classroom. You know, I go to work every day, and I get to I get to teach uh, projects that I love to do, whether it's you know DIY fixing things or making something out of nothing. I'm, I'm renovating my yard or doing a makeover, and we cut a tree down, and I had the guy cut me a couple of slabs out of it, and I'm making candle sort of tea light holders out of the tree stump, part of the, you know, a six-inch cut of the tree stump. And, you know, it's all about trying to see things differently, and I love that creative aspect of it. I've always been that way. I taught, I was, my dad taught me a lot of that stuff, and I never had a chance to use it. And it's a little bit different pill to swallow, I think, for people who followed me for years at ET, thinking, really, you're that guy that was in my living room every night in a suit and tie talking about, you know, Brittany shaving her head. And, and um, But the real passion for me is, you know, family, teaching my kids, living a healthy, you know, how to, you know, have character and integrity and all of those things, and then providing for them, cooking for them. And, you know, I do have a, a strong passion for photography um, and have had that since high school. And I just continue to try to find the balance of it all. You know, I'll, when I'll, I'll, this was something I've never forgotten, and it's lasted for close to two and a half decades of my life, is when I was a sportscaster and I was in L.A., I went and covered the John Wooden Classic, the great basketball you know, teacher and coach at UCLA. And he, they just launched the inaugural year of the John Wooden Classic, and I interviewed him after he talked to the students, and I said, you know, what's the message you want to have these kids walk away from this tournament with? And he said that, that you can find the key to life, and there's only two things. And when he said that, I remember just going, you know, I'm a simpleton. If there's only two things to, you know, have happiness in life, I, I think I can get that. And he said the first is love, and the second is balance. And if you can, if you can have those two things in your life, You'll you'll have happiness, and I and I never forgot that, and I always strive for that. I always want to find the most love and have people around me in my life, that and then balance because you can get out of whack really easily, in this particularly in this line of work, and the show that I work on is about balance. You can tune in and watch our show, and this is not a pitch to our show, but it, it, this is what I love about it. There's so much balance involved. We're one day we're dealing with financial stuff and we're dealing with education stuff, and then we're dealing with how to talk to your parents about moving them into assisted living, and then we're cooking, and we're doing fitness, and we're playing games. We have musical guests. It's just this great balance of life, and that's what I love. It's, it, I go, and I learn, and I get to teach. So it's sort of the great app, you know, for me. Hey, Mark, in the, in the last 15 seconds or so before we let you go, I mean, you, it, you make it sound easy, but you really took a big leap of faith when you changed your job, you changed your home situation. Was it worth it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I wouldn't, uh, you know, I, I, you know, there are times you look over your shoulder in life and you kind of go, hmm. And I look over my shoulder and I feel so good about that transition. Look, it's not easy. There were a lot of people who came on to ET and left the show and never really resurfaced again or in other areas. And I really feel like I made a smooth transition after 17 years. It's tough, but I'm so happy. I am beyond blessed.
We're going to have to leave it there. We'd love to get you back, Mark. I want to talk more about your photography and the fact that uh, Men's Fitness Magazine has named you one of the 25 fittest men in America. Mark Steinis, thanks so much. Coming up, she was the first female ever signed by Nike, a running icon and a professional pioneer who was born with two deformed feet. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps, like a daily walk, making smoothies, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. You're listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer along with Mark Middleton, and our next guest is a true running legend, a former world record holder and a member of the U.S. Track and Field Hall of Fame. A native of New Zealand, she's a four-time Olympian who's dominated in every distance from 800 meters all the way up to the marathon. That's not really the whole story, Bill, because she is not exactly what you would call a natural. She was an orphan born with severe bone deformities in both feet and couldn't walk correctly until reconstructive surgery at the age of 13. But from then on, she was running. In fact, just three years later, she qualified for the 1972 Munich Olympics in the 1500 meters. And that is just part of her story. Let's find out more as we chat with Annie Audane. Hey, Annie, how are you? Good morning. I'm fine. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time. What an amazing story you have. If it's okay, let's go back to your operation at the age of 13. Because after your surgery, your doctors did something that almost seemed cruel at the time, but ultimately led to much of your success. That's very true. I um, I really wonder if it would have been done these days when everybody's kind of so cautious. But I always say those doctors did an amazing thing. Even though they caused me a lot of pain, um, when I had the feet done, it was bone reconstruction and some transplanting of tendons, and I never had the heel-toe motion of walking before that. And so when I had the plaster casts on, they came up with an idea, and I always say that I was the first person to have those ugly boots that everybody now wears, um, I, uh, the doctors made a black leather boot, and on the bottom of the black leather boot, they put a wooden rocker like a rocking horse, so that as my feet were healing under those plaster casts from the surgery, the rocker was pushing me forward onto the front part of my feet. And as much as that caused me a lot of pain, it was actually a brilliant um, idea because as soon as those casts came off, I found it was easier to run than it was to walk. Annie, physically difficult, absolutely, but mentally, how difficult was that as a transition? You know, I had a lot of support from the doctors. Um, this was obviously down in New Zealand, and um, I, you know, I, I recently, the, the doctor who did the surgery recently passed away at the age of 91, and, but prior to that, I actually managed to meet him again and talk to him about it, and he says in his words that they would have done the surgery on me even if I'd been the biggest couch potato in the world because it was it was stopping so much mobility and I think you know we all looked at it my parents and me was that it was my chance to to walk properly and pain-free so it was let's just take the chance. You know, Annie, one of the things we love about you is you were not only a great runner, you were a bold one. Back in 1981, Phil Knight, who most of us know as the co-founder of Nike, put up $50,000 in prize money for a race in Portland and encouraged many of the world's top runners to come. Now, the consequences of accepting any money as a runner at that time were as a lifetime ban. But you came, you ran, you won, and sure enough, you did receive a lifetime ban. Fortunately, it didn't stick, but that race, in fact, was pretty much instrumental in changing the sport, right? 
You know, I had travelled um, earlier through Europe, um, the European track circuit, um, the 10 years prior to coming to the United States, and I'd watched all the under-the-table payments that were specifically given to all the male athletes in Europe, and many of my fellow countrymen um, would boast about the amount of money they were earning. So in my mind, it was like, I want the same opportunity too. Now, I had no idea going into the race that I would win the race, I thought I'd just maybe finish fifth or sixth and earn enough money to stay in the United States a bit longer because I had just arrived in March of that year and I was running out of money. I'd bought my savings and I ended up winning and I ultimately got given a lifetime ban from the sport. But also one of the problems I had was I was also threatened with deportation because I was only here on a visitor's visa and it's illegal to earn money in the United States on a visitor's visa. So I had that problem as well. And there was tremendous support um, within the road racing community, not so much with U.S. track and field. They were the ones that were very much against it and were giving out the bans. But the road race directors really wanted the sport to be open. And as I look back now, that day actually not only changed track and field and running, but it changed the Olympic Games as well because if it had not been opened up, then the Dream Team wouldn't have got there. And your life is fascinating on the track but also off it. You ended up finding your birth parents. What was that like? Well, uh, you know, as sometimes adopted kids, you know, they start thinking about the fact of what their um, history is. And I was 32 years old and thinking, well, you know, if I start a family, is my foot problem hereditary? Ah, there's something about kind of, you know, knowing what your um, history is. But also there was a part of me that thought, you know what, a lady gave me up for adoption and uh, she really needs to know that I've had a pretty cool life. And it was really a matter of just being able to tell somebody, a birth mother, that she'd done a great thing, that I'd had wonderful parents, and that I had an amazing life. Well, long story short, I ended up finding out that my birth mother actually married my birth father a year after I was born and went on to have six more kids. And when I made the first phone call, they had kind of a double shock because, you know, I was a household name in New Zealand. That family had watched me run. They'd watched me win my gold medal and... and and so they knew who I was as Anne Ordain, but what they were about to find out was I was their sister and their daughter, and uh, I think that poor family was in a state of shock <laughs> for quite a while. Uh, folks, we're talking with a running icon, one of the greatest uh, female runners ever, and if her story sounds like it should be a book or a movie, Actually, it's both. Her biography, Uncommon Heart, was published in 2000. A documentary on her life, Anne Audain, Running Her Way, premiered in 2009. Uh, Annie, in the last minute, what, what is the moral of your story? What's the takeaway from the Anne Audain story? Well, I think it's perseverance. Um, I've persevered in, in even just in the running side of things, but also just in life in terms of, of you know, just not giving up, not quitting on anything um, accepting that you make mistakes or you so-called fail, but you, you learn from all of that. And I really just think it's, it's patience and it's perseverance and that positive attitude. You know, you're such an amazing person, Anne. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I mean, we could go on with you forever, uh, just about the, the on-track exploits and the way you pulled your life together so well off the track as well, Annie. You're a, you're a great inspiration to us all. If you'd like to learn more about her, check out her website, Anne Audain. It's A-N-N-E-Audain, A-U-D-A-I-N.com. Our thanks to running icon and pioneer Anne Audain.
Well, sadly, that is it for now. But Already? Re- yeah, it is. But remember, Growing Boulder does not stop here. It never stops, folks. You'll find hundreds more interviews just like the ones you've heard today with people who decided to make a change, and then you can witness the amazing results for yourself that came out of that. Ordinary people trying things they never thought possible, celebrities taking risks they never imagined, regular folks taking control of their health, finances, and their lives, all at growingbolder.com. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nanis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trap. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. So much.